Hi everyone, these pre-episode introductions are becoming somewhat of a habit, but I'll keep this one short. The audio will sound a little bit different today because we recorded the podcast over Skype. So if I sound a little bit more echoey than usual, that will be why. Apart from that, that's all I had to say. So enjoy episode 20 of the Midfield Politics Podcast. Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James and I'm joined across the dispatch box by Zach Green. On today's episode, episode 20 of the series, we're going to be talking about, once again, the US presidential election that we are now, I think, what, 11 or 10 days out from November the 3rd, which is very exciting and the stakes have been ever increasing over recent days. We had the final presidential debate earlier this week and it is at this point I will ask you, Zach, what has caught your attention over the past seven days? Well, what's caught my attention has actually been back here at home with, um, over the past few days, Marcus Rashford, uh, his battle with the government that ever since the free school meals debacle, uh, it's kind of re-emerged once again that Marcus Rashford has taken the torch and has united rival fans, uh, councils, uh, quite literally he's united the country in trying to make sure that kids don't go hungry over Christmas. I think it's one of those heartwarming stories, but at the same time it's it's quite revealing about the government that we have. I mean, yeah, this is this is obviously the main story that's been taken up political bandwidth this week. Uh, I mean, there's it, it's such an interesting discussion and it's not one that I've really been able to square the circle on because on a surface kind of human level, I find it very difficult to understand why the government didn't just vote for this motion, because I think given the weight of Marcus Rashford's personality, this is going to happen whether they like it or not. Um, as it as was the case earlier this year as well, it was Michael Rashford who who pushed it through kind of during the summer and beforehand. So yeah, I I struggle to understand tactically why the Conservative Party party have chosen this hill to die on. Um, the, the interaction that stood out to me was Philip Davies or Davis, who's a Conservative member of Parliament who called a sixteen year old girl intolerant virtue signaller. Um, over email after she asked why he had voted against the opposition motion. And that's important to note as well. This wasn't kind of the end stages of a bill. This was an opposition motion. It was like a lot of steps away from having a final package on this. And the Conservatives voted it down quite comprehensively. Um, There was an article by a Conservative MP in The Spectator. I can't remember which Tory MP, but it was one of the ones who voted for the motion explaining why it made sense for a Conservative Party to vote for this. And he put the point across really well. He basically said, well, the Conservative Party, Conservatives are about two things. They're obviously interested in having the best educational outcomes possible. And we're also interested in making sure there's good value for money for the taxpayer. And essentially he said, well, hungry kids don't do as well in school as kids who aren't hungry. So therefore by giving the kids food we're gonna both help the economy help the kids and everyone's happy and i think privately a lot of conservative mps probably agree with that kind of position um publicly it's it's been caught in the mire and it, it's, it's looking really sloppy for the government did you see the clip on sky news of the former health secretary jeremy hunt saying that this was just a motion designed to embarrass the government uh i did and at the same time 
it, it kind of this embarrassment is kind of self-inflicted, isn't it? Because of not just the way that the government has just voted voted down the motion, but actually how they've conducted themselves on social media since. For example, you've got the MP for Mansfield, uh, Ben Bradley, rattling some pure utter nonsense about crack dens and how free school meals actually uh, is a bad thing uh, that doesn't help people and it's all about responsibility and it's kind of Theresa May in 2002 said that the Conservatives were going to be looked as the uh, as the nasty party and it kind of still rings true 18 years on that it's not just the way they've just voted it's the way that they have kind of treated this attitude and they've treated Marcus Rashford and anyone who dare agree that the idea that kids shouldn't go hungry, uh, that, that free school meals should be made available, has been made out to be some sort of leecher, as I think one of the MPs said. It, it's just been quite revolting how they've, um, how they've just conducted themselves on social media. Uh, for example, I think you've also had the big, the big fiasco in Parliament where Angela Rayner was caught calling someone Tory, uh, a, a Tory scum, and yet that was the bone of contention for Tory MPs rather than the issue at hand. And it just shows you that this government, ever well, since they've been elected, have kind of lost all kind of sight of, as to why they were elected, that these were supposed to be the, the people's government, that they were supposed to be levelling up the country. And ever since that, of course, we've got circumstances that have kind of, uh, you know, thrown that up in the air yet at the same time they've lost sight of the people that have elected them and it's just reflecting so badly on them i think this whole situation is just a clear example of the government failing to read the room and i think you're right about kind of forgetting the people who got them elected in the first place this is a government that kind of rode off the coattails of boris johnson's personal popularity and his personal charisma and that's fine and well because it won them the election but after winning the election on the grounds of A, Boris Johnson's popularity, and B, promising to deliver their ready-made Brexit deal, they had to remember that they weren't elected by a strong base of ideological conservatives. These aren't people who necessarily, of course, some of them might subscribe to this ideology, but I assume there's going to be a fair chunk of people who voted conservative in 2019 or, or didn't turn out and they were previously Labour voters who, who don't agree with the conservative ideology as a whole they they lent the vote to the conservative party and the tories are, are currently kind of governing in a way that would suggest that their their base is ideologically strong and i think they'll be very very surprised and caught off guard when the next election comes around because i don't think that's why they won the election last year and supporting things like this honestly it wouldn't have broke the bank and again in in the article i just referred to the Member of Parliament basically says, well, I wasn't a huge fan of us, the, the government, introducing the sugar tax on fizzy drinks. But that tax was designed so that it would then be kind of spent on um, healthy eating schemes and things like that. And he basically said, well, Conservatives don't really like this policy. Like, small small C Conservatives don't like this policy because it feels like government, government interference into people's lives. So the simple thing to do would be then just to take the money from the sugar tax and use it to pay for the for the kids kind of school meals. It's just 
I feel like there's going to be quite a substantial gap between where the public is on this issue and where the Conservative Party kind of members of Parliament are on this issue. The thing that I wanted to mention as kind of the topic that caught my attention this week was some of the hacking news surrounding the upcoming US election. So it, it, it broke earlier this week that Iran had, or a hacking group in Iran, had accessed the kind of contact details of voters in Florida and Alaska, who they who they then sent kind of threatening emails telling them that they had to vote Donald Trump or else. Um, Zach, any thoughts on this story? It, it's quite troubling, isn't it? Um, the details of that story was that they were emailing, finding the voter registration records of people in Florida uh, and sending like threatening emails or it was something like that to these voters that plan to vote Democrat in Florida as we know it's a, it's a very close fought state that's going to be a close fought state come election day and it shows you that I think although it's not an issue in this election it's a big issue I think in American politics and I think in, in any country's politics is their foreign policy and how they deal with <clears throat> rogue rogue states uh for want of a better phrase, uh, in trying to interfere with not just their democratic exercises, but their their politics in general. And it, it's quite troubling that that this is happening. And of course, um, I was watching the ABC coverage of, of the debate and they were previewing the debate and they were talking about this. And you had a former, someone that was in the Trump administration in Homeland Security, they're saying, well, we can't really rule out the extent to which that these sources can interfere with their elections that it could be that they start interfering with with counts in certain districts in certain states now if that was to be the case that is extremely troubling and would need um, a robust response but the point is that foreign interference in elections isn't well it's normal because it's it happens in every election near enough everywhere it to some point but the point as well is that it isn't normal that it's going unchecked in the way that it didn't at the last election for example with Hillary Clinton's emails that sparked a huge huge backlash and a huge um, finger pointing exercise to Russia and other countries and this won't go away I believe that once this election's done and dusted that the issue of Iranian and Russian interference in this election shouldn't go away and whoever is the president comes their inauguration in January should be putting this as one of their priorities that the US are supposed to be a world leading country in terms of national security and if their election is being interfered to the extent of which tally counts and voters are being uh, coerced into voting for a certain party then that requires a, a big discussion a big response. Yeah, this this isn't something that has gone away since the 2016 election. And this is something that the Trump administration and just American politics in general hasn't really got a handle on. I mean, there, there was interference in the 2016 presidential election, as, as everyone knows at this point. There was kind of interference in the congressional elections in 2018. And it's something that's going to continue to happen until kind of the American administration, the American government can prove that they've got a handle on this. I think... As innocuous as something like this can be, I think what happened in, in Alaska and Florida was fairly innocuous in the sense that 
the people behind the hack didn't gain access to anything that was kind of private information. It was already kind of like publicly accessible information on kind of electoral rolls and whatnot. But it's an attempt to intimidate voters, and that's something that you can't stand for. And again, I think um, I was listening to the NPR roundup this week, and they said around 25,000 Gmail users received this email in those two states. And about 90% of them had kind of the email kind of filtered through into the spam. So they probably didn't see it anyway. But that's still kind of a decent number of people who who did receive this email might have been intimidated by it. So it's something that the government has to get a handle on. And I think it's something we'll see kind of continue through the days ahead. Of course, we're now at a similar time when James Comey released kind of the information about Hillary Clinton's emails last time out. So yeah, we're in a crunch point in this election and it's certainly going to be interesting to see if anything that happens over the coming days has a true impact. I would suggest before we move on that anything that does happen after this date probably won't make a huge difference. Um, And I say that simply because so many people have already voted, but that's, that's going to be something we're going to discuss a little bit later on in the podcast. Zach, you wanted to talk about the second and final debate of of 2020 what did you make of it 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 was actually i'd say the first debate of this election that it was much more structured it was much more better moderated than i think the first one as well but it's the age-old rule i think it's too little too late in it in terms of its impact on the presidential race and we've not really seen any polls that would suggest otherwise at the moment but this was a refreshing debate because you saw a bit more policy from both candidates. You saw a lot more discourse on big issues that have come up in this election. And as well, I think we're, we're seeing some more revealing sides to both candidates in their key areas. For example, Trump's immigration policy. I think there was a lot more that was revealed about him as well. And with Biden's kind of approach to the coronavirus, you saw for, finally for a man who's much more trusted the coronavirus, he finally started to say what a Biden administration would do in 2021 as uh, coronavirus still takes hold in America. I have to agree with you there, Zach. I think this was by far the best debate of the two. I mean, it, it couldn't have got worse than the first presidential debate. It really was that bad. There was so much more policy mentioned. There were so much more substantive issues kind of on show. And I think it did the job of what a debate should do at this point in an election cycle. It gave voters very clear answers on very clear questions. And again, one of the main talking points was Joe Biden's comments on the transition away from the oil industry, which Republicans have been very keen to kind of label this as a gaffe on the Democratic nominee's part. And kind of Democrats have said, well, this is just, this is the party's policy on this issue. Of course, we do want to move away from the oil industry. This is what we started doing under President Obama. So there's a lot to talk about there. Before we go into that, I wanted to have a quick kind of mention of of Donald Trump's performance, because I think he learned from his mistakes from the first debate, because he came off of the stage in after after the first round of debating, and he looked a little bit ridiculous. I think the the game plan from Trump was very, very clear the first time out. It was to bully Joe Biden. It was to dominate Joe Biden. It was to try and get Joe Biden to be flustered and unable to answer questions. And he succeeded in doing that. But the issue Donald Trump had is that voters didn't like it. 
people looked at it and said, well, this is just not really appropriate, is it? And I think that's why we saw a totally different version of Donald Trump this time out. The BBC's John Sapel said this is kind of Donald Trump 2.0. What did you make of the president's performance? I think it was much more presidential from Trump. I thought he actually answered questions a lot better. That, um, of course, you might disagree with what the president says and you might have to fact check everything he says. But I think he made his answers a lot more tailored to the question that it was much more political. He was playing, he was doing what we always talk about, politicking, but politicking quite well. That it came to a very contentious point in the debate about um, cages, for example. And Donald Trump kind of slipped back into character of kind of being the, the bully, but in a, in a way of kind of he wants his opponent to answer a question. And I, I, was, I was impressed. I thought, do you know what? I think this was good, a good performance from Trump. He was more respectful towards uh, Kristen Welker, who he's obviously had previous with in terms of deriding her. And... He, he was much more respectful in that sense. He was answering questions. He did interrupt a couple of times, but I think both were. But again, I think it's too little too late. And if you had to class this as a Trump win in the debate, he'd have to meet a couple of objectives. And the main one is, and I, we'll talk about this a bit later on about early voting. Some people have already voted. 3% of the country, uh, according to ABC, are undecided voters. And that 3% is not going to swing the result either way. What's going to swing the result in this election is converting Democrat intending voters to switch back to the Republicans and their Democrat voting friends. And if that doesn't happen, then Trump has failed in this debate. And to be honest with you, I don't see how he's going to do that with his policies because anything he says has already been said and people don't like it. People do see this as a referendum on Donald Trump and they've made up their minds. They've already voted in certain states. And yeah, again, too little, too late. I don't see it shifting the polls. And I think Donald Trump is running out of ideas as to how to get voters back on side. I think him and his strategy has always been to kind of mobilise his base and just see the election out in the states that he won last time, try and get more Republican voters out that didn't vote last time. But he knows that this surge of voting, this blue wave that's coming, he can't counteract it. And therefore, I think that this debate, yeah, it was good. It was a good performance, but it's not going to win the war, which is what he needs to win on November 3rd if he's to be the president for a second term. I would agree. I, I think this was a much better performance from Donald Trump. The only kind of reservation I would say about kind of his his display on and earlier this week would simply be by saying maybe he was a little bit too presidential. Um, I never thought I'd, I would be uttering those words about, about <laughs> Donald Trump, but kind of hear me out. I feel like a lot of, a lot of the way through this debate, I feel like we'd, it, it was probably too much of a departure from what voters had, had come to recognise as Trump. It felt like he'd been restrained by the new rules in this debate, and it felt like he wasn't entirely comfortable with the way he went about it. I also feel like Donald Trump's biggest attraction is the fact that he's not a typical politician. Even in this debate, he said, look, the only reason I run for the White House in the first place was because I was unhappy with how Barack Obama ran the country, which I'll be honest, was a very good line on his part. I thought that kind of was, was quite a good moment for him in the debate. 
so you have this guy who's who's very much not your regular politician acting a lot like a regular politician and i felt like that might have turned off some of the republican voters who are undecided between voting trump and not voting at all and i think that could be an issue for him and again it, i tend not to read too much into kind of the the snap polls after after debate where where viewers are asked who won the debate kind of the poll by CNN said that 53% of viewers thought Biden won compared to 39% who Trump have won. Um, 538 said that kind of the debate probably didn't have a major impact on either candidate's favorability, polling numbers or likelihood of winning. And I think this is the most important thing kind of to mention at this point. The second and final presidential debate was watched by 63 million people, an estimated 10 million fewer than the amount who watched the first debate and 8.6 million fewer than the amount who watched the final debate in 2016. That is, for Donald Trump especially, really bad news. Because Donald Trump, if we are to believe the polls, which I kind of do at this point, I think the polls polls don't get everything right, but I think the polls kind of indicate where the public mood is at. And we're very much in a ballpark where nationally Biden is is miles ahead. That, of course, isn't the case in all the states, and we're going to talk about some of the most important ones later in the show. But the polls aren't looking good for Donald Trump, and he needed people to connect with his message in this final debate, and I don't think he kind of broke through in the way that he would have been hoping. And I think that's honestly a really, really big issue for him. The next thing I wanted to ask you about, Zach, was Joe Biden's comments about the oil industry. Was this a gaffe? Or was this simply just a kind of assertion of the Democrats' policy? I think it was an inadvertent uh, admission of their policy. I don't think it's it was a gaffe. It, it, it was one of those moot points that you, you really wouldn't think, well, he can't have just said that by accident. He's not a, that's not a gaffe. Because we know Joe Biden is renowned for gaffes in certain debates, but those are really just not how he missed when he when he misspeaks for example you know he he drops the line or he gets words mixed up but this was too clever to be a gaff yeah i mean this was a moment that everyone is talking about in this election because of some of the key states in this election so the oil industry in the united states is incredibly important and i think the british followers of, of american politics that's quite easy to miss out on and i think and this this was said on the BBC's American Politics podcast as well. I think it's very easy easy for British voters and British kind of listeners of the show to forget how the debate in America about climate change is very different to how it is here. I think in the UK there is a very broad acceptance and kind of consensus on the matter that A, climate change is real and B, climate change is something we need to address. In the United States, they kind of talk about the weather a little bit more rather than climate. There's obviously a higher reliance on the oil industry. So the debate in the United States is in a very different place. And that kind of, you only have to look at the 2016 election to be able to see how that is the case. And I think this this comment from Biden has been blown massively out of proportion because everyone probably knew this. I mean, this is this is a guy who was vice president to Obama who, although I think some of his policy, a lot of his policies on this issue kind of contradicted what he said prior to taking office but this is someone who has been committed to kind of greener energy anyway he's part of the party that offers the green new deal of course 
Biden has distanced himself from the Green New Deal, but he's always going to be tainted by that by association. And yeah, I think this is a talking point that will matter in a lot of states, but in, in most of them isn't going to be hugely impactful. The two where it could be important, firstly is Pennsylvania, which of course is very much a swing state and is going to be so important in this election. In 2016, it was the tipping point. The other one is Texas, which I've said this a couple of times. I don't see Texas swinging for Joe Biden. So do you think do you think the oil comment has an impact on Election Day? Um, on Election Day, no. I feel like, if anything, it's these kind of comments that will come back to bite Biden potentially at the next election, should he win this one. It's one of those things where an astute Republican candidate next time round will point to the Democrats and say, well, hang on a minute. You said one thing when you were fighting for the presidency. You've now done something else. How can we try? It's that kind of quite remedial politicking that kind of will be effective next time round than at this one. Because I think, as we've said throughout our coverage of this election for what seems like months now, this will be dominated by COVID and it will be dominated essentially by having our, well, I'd say it's our first proper presidential election where you're either voting for President Trump or Joe Biden rather than a Democrat president or a Democrat or a Republican president. If you, you kind of understand what I'm trying to say is that this is, I don't think this is a party election. This is definitely a pure election between two people rather than it just being something about oil. Yeah, and I think the important thing to count of as well is, of course, there'll be lots of people employed in Pennsylvania in the oil industry, but Pennsylvania is also a state that produces an awful lot of renewable energy too. And if if there is a shift towards a kind of renewable energy, that could that could come to benefit the state also. And it's important to kind of stress that Biden's policy on this isn't really that radical in British terms. It's just totally kind of run of the mill in particular the policy is basically not to subsidize the production of oil which in the united states is is moving an awful long way from kind of the position that trump has taken but on on a global politics scale not subsidizing the production of oil and instead kind of subsidizing renewable sources i don't think is something that would, will have kind of a massive impact in all honesty i think had had this comment been made earlier in the election I think that's a huge issue. But if you look at some of the voting numbers, particularly in Texas, I feel like the boat has kind of soured on this having a major impact. Was there anything else that happened in the debate that you wanted to speak about, Zach? Uh, I believe the healthcare um, debate was very interesting. That Donald Trump was kind of pointing that he has to get rid of Obamacare. It's really bad. It's a total disaster. But for the first time, we get what Biden care will be, that kind of Joe Biden does acknowledge that there are some flaws, but not fatal flaws in Obamacare. And I think Joe Biden was talking about how it was going to be uh, you can get access in any state or something like that, where you're not just confined to your state. And then Donald Trump was accusing Joe Biden of bringing socialised medicine and in a way, I think that, again, it's a comment that probably was intended to land on Joe Biden, but it's actually landed back on Trump. Because if you pick apart what socialised medicine will be, I feel as if at a time such as COVID, you want access to medicine very quickly and to a lot of it. 
and to kind of deride a candidate for trying to make medicine available readily to everyone in the United States, to make that out as a bad thing is a really bad strategy from Donald Trump. And considering healthcare is a big issue in America at every election, no matter what else is going on in the world, it's again where Trump might, may lose ground in some of the swing states that are heavily reliant on premium-free uh, healthcare. For sure, and I think we've inadvertently picked out the two issues in this election that are most alien to kind of the majority of our kind of listenership being that kind of most of us are kind of based in the UK at this point. I mean, again, the difference between Americans, America's position on, on healthcare and the UK's position on healthcare is just land and land and sea apart. And I think it's important to kind of pick some of that apart kind of in terms of the detail. Basically, the issue that I have in American politics is that the whole notion of America is based off of freedom and liberty and all of this kind of harks back to kind of the war of independence and this kind of stuff and the idea that the state would intervene in this way for some people is quite a disturbing idea and it looks a lot like socialism or communism or whatever the kind of label you want to put on this and I think the fact that kind of they even use the term socialized medicine in the American context considering kind of the history behind the Red Scare says a lot about where the public discourse is on this issue and of course there's been movement on this on this policy area over time. The Obama administration, the Affordable Care Act, is obviously something that's made a huge change to how kind of healthcare in, in the United States works, and that's important to note. And I think the the conversation on this in the debate, I, I don't honestly believe would have moved many people. My my thoughts at this point in the election are, are fairly, I think, routine and not particularly controversial. I do feel like this is a case of policy has faded into the background and even though i feel like this is one of the first times the first opportunity we've really been able to talk about policy in a meaningful way i think the voters have kind of gone beyond this now i think the points that really did land in this debate were when joe biden for example said kind of look at me you know what my character is and then he compared him with, with he compared himself with donald trump i mean i think these are the moments that stood out these are the moments that kind of went somewhat viral on social media and i feel like the policy areas probably aren't going to be the defining factor this time i think for the, for the people who have massively already decided that they're already a republican or they're already a democrat of course that's a huge issue but if you're not sure whether you're going to vote for donald trump or joe biden whether or not people change the way they access healthcare, i, I don't think at this point in the election is what they are undecided about I'd be very un I'd be very surprised if that is kind of the major sticking point. I think the next thing I wanted to ask, we've spoke about the president's performance in the final debate. What did you make of Joe Biden's performance? I feel the kind of the lack of interruptions helped Joe Biden a lot. Uh, he had a lot, a lot more time to think on his feet. He came out with some brilliant one-liners against Donald Trump. I think. Is it, even I misheard it when he spoke about oh, about being the least racist president in history. And then Joe Biden turns around and says, well, Abraham Lincoln over here is the most racist president in history. Uh, I think you saw what we saw in Biden's town hall, that this is a good humoured person. At times, yeah, he did kind of lose it a bit because I feel like there were certain comments that, yeah, there was no... He, no there was no way he'd be able to get his point across if it was a quiet, timid 
way of doing it. You had to be very forceful. Um, but again, it was, I think it was error-free. Uh, there were a couple of glaring omissions that Joe Biden has done that might cost him votes. But again, like we said at the top of the show, that the debate, I think, has is too little too late to change, I think, the general direction of what the election result will be. And I think it's another hurdle that the Biden campaign must be relieved. He's jumped over quite comfortably. Yeah, I think, as I said in the last, I think it was the last podcast, I, I've been pleasantly surprised by Biden kind of throughout this campaign. I honestly thought he was going to be too flat-footed, too rigid. And to be kind of bluntly honest, I thought he was going to be too old for this election. I didn't think he had the personal charisma or the ability to kind of take on Donald Trump in what I predicted would be and has kind of turned out to be a very, very kind of hateful election between the two candidates. Um, and I, I think he did OK. I mean, if, if we're going to put numbers on this, I'd probably give Biden a, a six out of ten. I'd probably give Donald Trump a seven out of ten. But I, when I say that, I don't mean that Donald Trump won the debate because I don't think he did enough to walk away as the winner. I just think that kind of in terms of what they needed to get out of it, I think kind of Trump probably had the slightly better night, but I think Biden did fine. I just, yeah, I mean, Joe Biden did okay. And I think that's all Joe Biden needed to do. He just needed not to have a moment where he kind of totally messed up. And he certainly didn't have that. And I don't think the oil comment, as we've said, was that at all. So, I mean, that's all the debates in the books. What I would say is, is the changes to the rules that they made kind of from the first debate to the second debate was definitely very, very helpful. I mean, definitely very helpful because it just made Kirsten um, Welker's job so much easier. Didn't have to deal with the candidates talking over one another, especially in the opening two minutes. And it made for a better debate. It was a high, high quality debate, but you're yeah, ultimately less eventful. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot slightly, Zach. What was your favourite comment from the final debate? Uh, oh, that's a difficult one. My favourite comment is that I think it's definitely Joe Biden's quip about Abraham Lincoln and Donald Trump. I feel that that was um, that was that was quite funny. And again, it just shows you that Joe Biden isn't this old man who can't think for himself. It was a very good humoured, quite witty comment. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I did like I did like that comment as well. Um, there, there was another quip that kind of caught me, kind of caught my attention this week. It was from um, Barack Obama's rally in Philadelphia. I think it was in Philadelphia where he was talking about kind of Donald Trump um, having a Chinese bank account. And <laughs> Obama basically said, well, kind of what would Fox News be saying about me if I was president and I had a Chinese bank account that'd be calling me Beijing Barry? was kind of the quip that he came out with. And I thought that was funny too. And again, I think it speaks to a lot of kind of the tension in tension between kind of US politicians and, and kind of the news media, because I mean, it's been four years since Obama was in the White House and it still clearly stings the way he was treated by kind of media figures on the right. So that kind of stood out to me too. I think that probably sums up our thoughts on the debates in some the second debate was better than the first but it still wasn't kind of particularly riveting to to say the least um what i wanted to mention at this point in the show was simply that joe biden in a lot of the really important swing states and the states that are in play in this election 
is absolutely hammering Donald Trump in terms of his ad spending. Zach, what does that say about kind of the state of the race? I think it feels that the Biden campaign have been much more strategic as to where they're spending their money. Whereas you've got Donald Trump at these quite loud, definitely not COVID secure rallies in the in, in your typical swing state. But it, again, it just shows you the difference between how each campaign is handling their their man. For example, it's the little things with Joe Biden that he wears a mask whenever he whenever he's out, whereas Donald Trump doesn't, and he kind of mocks the idea that Joe Biden wears his mask. And in general, I feel like. If I'm a strategist, I'm spending money in states I think I can win. And it's quite telling that there must be something positive in private polling for Democrats to be spending a lot of money in a lot of states that we would think, well, that would not be normal for a Democrat to poll very well in that certain state. 100%. I think the most glaringly obvious uh, kind of element of this conversation is what's happening in Florida because Joe Biden is spending an awful lot of his campaign fund in Florida. This is Donald Trump's home state. Donald Trump kind of since his first election has kind of made Florida his his home state. This is a state that if Donald if Donald Trump was going to win this election comfortably, Florida wouldn't even be a question mark it would just simply be a Donald Trump victory and we wouldn't need to talk about it I think the fact that we are talking about Florida as as a state that could potentially swing in favor of the Democrats says a lot about how this is going and the fact that Joe Biden and the Democrats are spending a lot of money there I think really says it all and again it's just it's going to make for a really fascinating end to this election both kind of the actual election in in itself and the campaign, because there's a true discrepancy between the amounts of money that Biden and Trump are spending. And again, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it stinks of financial mismanagement on the Republicans' part, because Donald Trump has been campaigning for the past four years. And we're at a stage where Joe Biden, who at the start of this campaign, even in the primaries, we both said, well, he's not... Chariz- uh, he hasn't got an awful lot of charisma. We're not particularly impressed by him, and yet he's out kind of <laughs> out fundraised the president, which is just incredible considering the incumbency factor. There was a comment actually from from the debate that I wanted to pick up on on this point as well, where Donald Trump accused Joe Biden of taking, for all intents and purposes, dirty money from Wall Street. The president then went on to say, "Well, if I wanted to take." money from Wall Street, I could. I know them all very well. I know what gets them kind of going. What did you make of that? Yeah, it was a, a dodgy comment considering Trump was at probably one of the mainstays of Wall Street until he decided to run for president. So it's kind of, again, it's a, it's a haphazard comment that's obviously designed to damage Joe Biden that has kind of implicated Donald Trump in the process. Yeah, I mean, it was just... It was very odd, wasn't it? And again, there isn't anything inherently wrong about taking money from Wall Street. But the the point that Donald Trump was trying to make at that point was, well, look at Joe Biden. He's going to be influenced by all these people, all these undesirable kind of interests. And again, there's been actually some really shocking um, political messaging on this by by the Republican Party, by the GOP. And it's it has kind of 
verged on, if not crossed over, into anti-Semitism. There was a clip on, it was a YouTube advert kind of directed in the United States, where Mitch McConnell was basically talking about how the Democrats have billionaires like George Soros. Um, and uh, there was another example, but I can't think of who it was. Um, and basically making the point that these kind of big business people who basically run the world behind closed doors and the Republicans were just appealing for four dollars from everyday Americans and the discourse around that has been pretty disgusting in all honesty and I think it also shows that the Republicans are scrambling because they are once again trying to start some kind of culture war there's not many days to the election and they're being outspent in a number of really important states Joe Biden is receiving blanket coverage kind of in between kind of shows. It's, it's quite something and it's not what we would have been expecting. Do you think this has a huge impact come election day? Uh, no, I, I don't think it will. Uh, again, it's kind of all policy and all kind of attacks are being kind of swept before it because of the big issue of, of the world, which is still the coronavirus. And I think we said this again across our coverage that the longer coronavirus is in the spotlight as one of the central issues of this election, the more that the president's going to struggle because we've seen most world leaders, probably bar Jacinda Ardern, come out very, very well out of the coronavirus because of their handling of it. And Donald Trump has again failed to turn this from a referendum on him to a, a choice election. Do you want a Republican president with Republican policies or do you want a Democrat president with Democrat policies? And again, the debate was a, a chance to shift that dial. And it, I always believe if he shifts the dial, you can get more votes on your side if you can convince them that Republican policies have been good for the economy, which they were until the coronavirus struck. And yeah, I just feel like, again, coronavirus is a huge galleon of a moon that is just covering everything else that, that should, it shouldn't be covered. And it's just... Um, it, it would just be so interesting if we always do the accounts factual. If the coronavirus never happened, this different campaign with so many more issues and so many more comments coming to light that it kind of makes the 2016 campaign look like a, a high high stakes, massively political campaign, whereas this one has kind of just been a sole single issue election, which is very rare in our politics. Oh, I agree 100%. If the coronavirus hadn't happened, I think Donald Trump wins this election and I think he probably wins it handedly. And that's actually something he mentioned in, in a campaign event the other day. I can't remember where it was. It definitely began with an e eerie. It was an eerie. I've got no idea where that actually is in the United States, but that's kind of specifically where he was, where he basically said, I would never have come to this place had it not been for the coronavirus. I thought I had it won. And again, that comment, was so interesting to me because number one you never admit that to voters you never say oh i wasn't going to come here because i was going to win the election here regardless of what i did of course that potentially would have been the truth and that's why you don't see conservatives flooding romford because they know they're going to win the seat anyway it's it's pretty obvious that you allocate your resources where they are needed the most but the fact that Donald Trump admitted on a really public forum, it was of course being kind of live broadcast on numerous networks, and said, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have had to come here with, without the coronavirus happening. That was that was a, an eye-opening moment for sure. That was just quite surreal in all honesty, because again, slightly offensive to the voters who 
did turn out to go and see him because it kind of indicated that he wasn't that interested had there not been kind of in dire straits. And secondly, that's a true shot in the arm to the Biden campaign because it says, well, yeah, they the Republicans are in the on the back foot and they're admitting as such on kind of a public forum. And again, we're at a state in this election where I feel like it's somewhat disingenuous to call November 3rd election day because people have been voting across the United States for basically a month at this point, kind of as we record on the 25th of October, 26.6 million voters have cast their ballots. We don't know kind of solid things on this because of course there's lots of kind of statistics going into this, but if we are to believe the numbers currently, that would represent 49% of those early voters being Democrats, 27% of the early voters being Republicans. That's, of course, of registered voters, depending on which party they kind of indicate their preference. In Florida, 5.7 million people have voted. In North Carolina, 3.1 million people have voted. This, as well as being the coronavirus election, is most definitely the early voting election. What do you make of these kind of figures, Zach? They are they're incredible, aren't they? And you're seeing it, all the metrics possible that point to a very high turnout for this election, higher than elections gone past. And early voting is, is quite significant in most elections. It, it kind of it gives campaigns kind of a, an indication of where they're going. And you're seeing analysis every day of how the Democrats are very comfortable with the fact that they've got votes in the bank. Whereas Republicans are a tradition, traditionally do rely on on the day voting, and for all of this furore from Donald Trump for the past few weeks, and he's gone alarmingly quiet on this actually, about mail-in voting being kind of a fraudulent design, and it just makes me think of the I was reading the Economist the other day, and it shows this kind of graphic of Donald Trump with a surfboard with 2020 on it. And then a massive blue wave of ballot papers like with votes on it. And it, I think it just shows you that this idea that Donald Trump's been purporting this theory that the more mail-in voting that goes on, the more susceptible they are to voter fraud. You have to go out and vote. I think it's going to backfire on him on these metrics as you're seeing so many states banking votes already. And if anything to go by with Democrats in large volumes registering to vote by proxy or by a mail-in vote, it leaves Donald Trump with very little room to manoeuvre as to how he's going to mobilise a vote-winning coalition of votes to get him in back into the White House, for example, in your swing states. For sure. And again, Donald Trump has spent the last months kind of attacking early voting, whether that be well, he's been attacking postal voting, but kind of absentee voting has been kind of A-OK, according to the president. It's important to note that Donald Trump voted early this week, and he said to reporters that he voted for a guy named Trump. So I wonder who that was. Um, so that's important to remember. The other kind of interesting thing about voting that popped up this week was there was a really interesting video from Barack Obama, who did, I think it was like a four or five minute piece to camera explaining how to vote early, kind of the procedure in his state, but of course there's there's similarities across the board, um, and just explaining the steps that he had to go through and talk about how it's an important thing to do. And there were lots of people in the comments, especially kind of non-Americans, 
who were saying this is really great to see because you've actually got a very, very high level political figure explaining really simply how you go about voting in the US presidential election. And again, people take this for granted because there are lots of states in America where the early voting rules, the kind of postal voting rules are not complicated. But if you don't do something that you're required to do, your vote doesn't count. So for people who aren't 100% engaged with the process, they could easily not sign the back of their ballot or they could easily not put it in the security envelope. And I think that that's something that's important to acknowledge. I mean, the voting figures are stunning. This is completely unprecedented. I know 2020 is the year where unprecedented has has risen to fame as, as, a, as a word in our dictionary. But yeah, it's it's been just an incredible ride in terms of early voting. I feel like Donald Trump, we, we can't know this for sure, and Donald Trump nor Joe Biden will know this for sure. But if one of the candidates is looking at the number of people who have voted early and is grimacing at the fact it is going to be Donald Trump because this is a substantial portion of the electorate that is so kind of sure of their views a long way before the election have already voted. And again, remember nationally, and of course, national polls in US politics aren't that important, but of course it does kind of show a direction of travel. Joe Biden's up by like 11 points. It doesn't look good for for the president in terms of the early voting numbers. And again, the polling on this has been so, so interesting. Before I get into kind of the presidential numbers, I want, there, there was a, uh, a race for the Senate that I thought was particularly interesting. In North Carolina, Cal Cunningham, who is up against uh, Tillis, who's the Republican incumbent, currently leading in the polls there. This is according to YouGov of likely voters. Um, this poll came out today. 49% to 43% he's currently beating the incumbent by Again, North Carolina, there's already been 3.1 million votes. It's going to be so interesting as we get to Election Day. Um, Another really interesting thing in the polling, again, this is polls of likely voters conducted by YouGov. Um, I'm going to read out some of the statistics from the swing states, some of the really important states that we're looking at over the next couple of days. In Florida, Joe Biden currently leads by 50 to 48 in Georgia it's tied on 49% apiece and then in North Carolina Joe Biden has 51% of voters compared to Donald Trump's 47% of voters when when kind of compared with what's happening in the North Carolina Senate I think that makes for really interesting reading Zach at the top of this segment I said kind of how is this impacting how you're looking at the election what is your current projection for election night? Uh, well, first of all, I think we should let viewers know that there are, I think, around 10 states that we're looking at with very keen eyes, that these are the ones that are going to definitely decide this election either way. As to projections, uh, I released my nailcast on Twitter earlier this morning. Uh, I've got basically a landslide to occur that I think Joe Biden's very likely to become president of the United States that he's going to breeze past the 270 winning post, which you need as there's 538 college votes at stake. Um, I always feel like it's irrelevant to talk about the national polling because we know that Donald Trump, and it's all about whether or not he gets these swing states. And on my metrics, the majority of those swing states that Donald Trump had last time, he's going to lose, but also lose quite emphatically, such as 
Wisconsin, for example, it looks like on the average on our database that he's going to be losing it by around six points, which is a huge swing away from Donald Trump. And if you put that into other swing states, for example, Arizona, uh, Pennsylvania, it, it does spell big trouble for Donald Trump on Election Day. Indeed. Um, the 10 states that we're interested in, um, I can think of nine off the top of my head. So you'll have to add the final one. So there's eight swing states that we, that people always look at. So that's Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Ohio and Iowa. I'm personally really interested in Georgia. I think that's one that could flip. Um, and spoiler alert, I don't think it will at this point. What's the other state you're interested in, Zach? I believe Arizona, and also there are two, this is very complicated, we will talk about this, I think, in one of our mini episodes to come, but basically there are congressional districts in um, in certain states, such as Maine and Nebraska, and you've got like Maine 1, Maine 2, Nebraska 1, Nebraska 2, Nebraska 3, and there's Maine District 2 and Nebraska District 2 that both went to I believe Donald Trump last time out, although they're only worth one electoral college vote, again, it kind of will show you where the votes are gravitating towards. They're also ones of big interest to me. Yeah, indeed. Um, Kind of on that front, it's just a case of those states don't allocate all of their electoral college votes to one candidate. It's worked out on, it's not proportional, but it's kind of more proportionate basis. So if there's a landslide in that state, one candidate gets all the votes. If there's not a landslide, there's probably somewhat of a split kind of electoral college vote from that state. I will go first. I'll share kind of, well, actually, you've already shared your projections, so I'll go second. Um, I currently have, and this is somewhat tentative because A, I am really terrible at making predictions, and B, I mean, who knows what could happen in the final days? It's it's all up in the air. But I currently have Biden on 334 electoral college votes i have donald trump on 204 electoral college votes of the states we've mentioned i've noted down how i've kind of predicted the swing states to go i have florida pennsylvania michigan north carolina and wisconsin going for biden i then have ohio and iowa for trump i think pennsylvania and michigan i'm actually quite confident about because the polling in those states have have pretty much held up for the Democrats at the moment. I worry, or I don't worry, but I predict Ohio and Iowa will probably stay with Trump because it's been trending that way. I don't think the Democrats have made a huge kind of impression there. Obviously the controversial, well, maybe not controversial, but the biggest, most important one of those is probably Florida. I feel like there's a lot of very angry people. And again, there was was a really interesting podcast um, uh, it was America, so it was the BBC's one, where they spent a lot of time talking about the villages. And this was, as someone who isn't particularly kind of familiar with the ins and outs of life in America, there's, there's a place in Florida called the Villages, which has basically 100,000 old age pensioners living there. It's like a, a huge kind of settlement for retirees, essentially, um, which in British terms just sounds completely bizarre. And there's a lot of people, when they spoke to people there on the ground, previously it was very confidently Trump. This time round, there's not so much of a consensus. And of course, in Florida, there is a huge demographic split between kind of people from minority backgrounds and also people from the upper age of the demographic scale. 
So there's so much at stake there. And I feel like Biden is probably just about going to steal Florida. That's my prediction. Um, of the other kind of couple we spoke about, I think Arizona is going to going to come in for, for Biden. And I have Georgia going for Trump. I mean, yeah, it's just it's so difficult to make predictions at this point. And I feel like we could in two weeks time, we could look very, very silly having predicted fairly comfortable victories for Biden. The two we did kind of disagree on are, I think, one of the electoral college votes in either mine or Nebraska. And of course, Georgia, you have flipping for Trump. On the Georgia point, why do you have Georgia? Um, so, sorry, Georgia for you is going to go for Biden. Why, why did you think that? Uh, from, from the polls I've been putting in my database, the Biden lead is much more consistently comfortable as compared to the Trump lead. For example, I think the highest Trump lead in Georgia is around 0.6%, which is very much a knife edge. That could literally come down to rejected ballots. Whereas you've got the Joe Biden lead, I think with the garden, he's 1.1% in front with YouGov, although we have to take that with a pinch of salt as that was around a week ago, it was 3%. Uh, and, and a simulation module, which I always do with every prediction, is um, has him around 1.8% in front. And I think for the Financial Times, that has that as a dead heat. So again, very, very close. And my assumption is if it's going to be the landslide that we believe it will be, you're going to see the kind of swings that just, just takes Trump out of Georgia. And yeah, I, I think Georgia... Is definitely one to keep an eye on. Iowa, I think, is the, is the big one, isn't it? That's the one where we cannot call it that and Ohio. They're the two big ones that we both believe will just about stay with Trump. But again, on another, it could be on the night votes don't turn out for Trump in the way that he believes they will. And Biden just creeps up a tiny bit from Clinton last time and takes the state. That comment, Zach, actually makes me think about a conversation we had while still in secondary school. This is going to be a niche analogy, but I'll go there anyway. We would have been talking about English and talking about how kind of we had a certain number of credits in the bank from our coursework going into the exam. And you're someone who continues to do this. You continue to kind of look at coursework and exams at university in a way where you're like, well, I got X number of cats already in the bank, which means I only need to get X number in the final exam. And I feel like Joe Biden is probably looking at this election in a very similar way, because all kind of indications suggest that the Democrats and Joe Biden have had the better of the early voting. If the early voting was all that mattered in this election, I'm fairly confident that Joe Biden would win and fairly confident is probably somewhat of an understatement. So he's probably looking at this thinking going into election day proper, he's got a lot of credit already in the bank. And that says one really important thing about this election. Donald Trump is much more vulnerable to voter turnout on November the 3rd than Joe Biden is, because Joe Biden is currently already ahead, probably. So if Donald Trump's voters, for whatever reason, don't turn out on Election Day, that is a massive monumental issue for the president. And again, there's been studies about this where like rain can impact the rate at which people go out and vote. And again, this is a president who a lot of in a lot of examples hasn't inspired a huge lot of kind of enthusiasm from people who voted for him in 2016. Of course, you have the group of very heavily pro-Trump voters 
but you also have a quite significant group of people who voted Trump in 16 who were saying we're not so sure on how this guy conducts himself. So that's that for me is a big, big problem going into Election Day. Absolutely. And I think we, we spoke about this when we were talking about the debate, how Trump fashions himself as not a usual politician. I think that was way more effective in 2016 when he wasn't a politician at all. He's not been involved in like the mechanics and the machinery of the White House ever before, as was Hillary, as compared to Hillary Clinton. Now he's been president of the United States for four years and was trumpeting this kind of message that I'm one of the best presidents that's ever like graced the White House. Look at how my economy was until COVID. To then row back on all of that, kind of again i think it, it snaps people's patience it makes people think hang on we've given this guy a political status he's not really done well with it look at what's happening across the country during covid i feel like some are so entrenched in their views towards republicanism that they won't go to biden or go to a third candidate they just won't vote and the problem for, with that is that we know Republicans are less inclined to register to vote early. They are very much a they turn out on the day as as well with first time voters that some of them actually do wait until Election Day. And they could very well decide who they're going to vote for when they're in the booth rather than even as they're walking up to the polling station. And if Trump can't get that message out there to on the day voters to what I call on the foot voters, then he can't run early voting as we know that the Democrats hold a huge advantage, especially this year with record turnout already in some states and an incredible amount of younger people actually turning out to vote in swing states as well. It just makes Donald Trump's task to cling on to 270 electoral votes much more difficult than it probably would be in any other election. To round off the podcast, Zach, I was just going to ask, um, you mentioned your spreadsheet that you're using to kind of project and help you kind of forecast what's going to happen on November the 3rd and the days after. Briefly, could you explain kind of what your thinking is with this? So what we're going to be doing for our election night is essentially do an exit poll without asking a single amount what they think. So what we're doing is we're taking a lot of reputable polling uh, initiatives such as 538 who are very reliable uh, The Economist, The Guardian, YouGov Financial Times just to name a few and get some kind of state specific polling as well and then we're going to amalgamate that into a simulation, it's very complicated, I've just about done the database myself, it still needs a bit more polishing and then we of course look at the margin of error and what we want to do by election night is produce three maps, so the first map is your typical exit poll which we, what we think will happen and then the other two are within the margin of error swings to either candidate. So we'll do one map and then the other map will be margin of error if it was to all go towards Trump and then the margin of error if they all went towards Biden. And hopefully by that we get a very accurate sense of a prediction. And of course, as election night goes on, that exit poll turns into a forecast. Once we get more data, we can actually look at how states are voting at their differences from 2016 and how we think the election will swing. And that, I think, kind of draws perfectly to a close this episode of the Midfield Politics podcast. Um, over the next week until Election Day, we're going to be doing shorter snap editions of the podcast. So you're going to see a lot more of us in your podcast feed over the next week. If there is anything you'd like us to discuss kind of specifically, whether that be a state race for the Senate, whether it be the presidential race 
in a particular state, please do let us know. Tweet us at Midfield Politic and we'd love to hear from you. We're also planning to do kind of an explainer episode of the podcast where we talk about kind of some of the more procedural issues in US politics. So if, if you have any questions, please do get in touch. As always, my name has been Luke James. I've been joined by Zach Green across the aisle and across the dispatch box. And that rounds off another episode of the Midfield Politics podcast. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Keep voting.